Am I on? Okay. I introduce myself. I'm Steve Seals, for those of you who don't know. Um, I'm also very pleased to have the opportunity to, to speak with you today and share a, a message God's laid on my heart. Um, I also personally want to thank Truman for giving me this opportunity. It's a privilege and an honor, really, to uh, stand behind this pulpit, uh, particularly we have such a godly man who teaches the Bible so well here, so I just want to thank you for that. Um, I find it interesting Truman asked me to speak today on the first day of the year. The message I'm going to be sharing with you is one I presented on the first Sunday of the new millennium, where everybody was worried, you probably remember about Y2K, that the computers were going to crash and play, everybody was scared to death. And um, and I, so it was interesting that I was, spoke at that time, but at the beginning of the year, we often take time to reassess where we are in life and what changes may be needed. I believe this is corporately true for the church as well. God's course for the church remains the same. Yet like a sea captain, we need to take our bearings occasionally to make sure we're aligned with the path that he set before us. So after I pray, I'd like to explore a few passages with you that probably aren't typically used for, I'll say, New Year's Day sermon. Okay? Let me open us with prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, Lord, how truly gracious you are that you extend mercy to us, Lord, that we are shameless sinners, Lord, that, that all too often, Lord, that we have turned our back on you. And yet, Lord, you, the God of the universe, Lord, loved us enough that you made the way for your son's life and then death on the cross, Lord, to pay the penalty that we could not pay. And Lord, that you would then impute his holiness to us so that we might have a right relationship with you. Lord, we just have to humbly just bow and just praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And Lord, as we go forward today, as I speak with the the congregation here, I just ask that you would guard my words, that they would be only the words that you would have spoken, Lord, and that hearts and ears would be opened, and Lord, to hear this message. I just thank you and ask your continued blessing and guidance for all those here, and you ask this in your son's most precious name. Amen. <clears throat> I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> Let me read that for you, just so no one thinks I'm not using the Bible. I actually printed it on a page, big print, because I'm getting older and my eyesight's not that good. So. <clears throat> then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They had... They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. 
But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him into the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came the other came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say to you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. <clears throat> we just read the familiar parable about the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom. And the central message of the passage is that we need to be prepared and waiting expectantly for Christ's return, for we don't know when he will return. John MacArthur summarized that the parable underscores the importance of being ready for Christ's return in any event, even if he delays longer than expected. When he does return, there will not be a second chance. In this parable, it talks about oil. It's very interesting when I first um, had a pastor preach on this, and I likewise took it this way. Typically, oil stands for the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And I read, you read this, and you think, oh, the, 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 the wise had the oil in the Holy Spirit, and the unwise did not. Well, that's not actually accurate with what the text is saying here. <clears throat> If you read it, we look at verse 3, it said, The foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. <clears throat> but the wise took oil in their vessel with their lamps. They carried a second vessel, the wise one, to put the oil in where, where the foolish did not. <clears throat> so, in this parable then, the oil represents the depth of commitment that the virgins had for the bridegroom. Was there a deep, trusting commitment that he was going to come and they were going to do whatever was necessary to be there? Or was it shallow and self-centered? Hey, I'd like to go to this wedding, so i just quickly go and get prepared. The good, I'll say analogy of what salvation is, because salvation requires not a simple sort of intellectual belief about certain beliefs or certain facts but a complete, humble submission to Christ as one Savior and Lord. The wise virgins, or the saved, were ready. They had the required amount of oil, the commitment of trust in that bridegroom, while the foolish did not. <clears throat> Yet there's another important truth contained within this parable that we may overlook. Both groups went out to wait for the groom together. They probably lived in the same proximity, and most were probably family members and relatives. Because in the Jewish culture at that time, adult family members, when they got married, they often simply built their resident right beside their parents' home. <clears throat> if they weren't relatives, they were at least neighbors and acquaintances. They were their friends. Sometimes what's said in the Scripture is very important. 
Because nowhere in this passage do we read that those wise virgins inquired if the foolish virgins had enough oil for their lamps. Maybe they assumed the foolish virgins knew enough to bring oil since they were holding lamps. Or maybe the wise virgins didn't want to offend the foolish virgins or cause a scene even though the foolish virgins did not display they had that separate vessel for oil. Or maybe they just didn't care. But there's no mention that they ever discussed the need for more oil with their foolish associates. Instead, they slumbered in the midst of the foolish virgins, content, comfortable, and satisfied. When the bridegroom returned, their attitude was, too bad. Fend for yourselves. Hey, I've got mine. That's all that matters. I want you to notice that there is no reference in this parable that the wise virgins were concerned for their foolish relatives, friends, and neighbors. Nor were they really concerned, if you really think about it, about what the bridegroom wanted, because if they were, they would have wanted all the virgins to come to the wedding celebration just as the groom wanted. They would have spoken to the foolish virgins to ensure they had brought enough oil and not just the appearance of being prepared. No, not a single wise virgin cried out to their lost associates. There wasn't a single tear shed the moment that the lost, the foolish virgins were shut out the door. <clears throat> I'm afraid... This picture is fairly accurate description of the majority of Christians in the church today. We're comfortable. We're self-absorbed. We aren't too concerned really what the bridegroom wants. We all like to be comfortable. It's sort of human nature. We can see its preeminence in our culture and our technology. Right? We have microwaves. We have clickers. We don't have to get up to change the channel anymore. But sadly, we can see it as also the focus in many of our churches today. For unfortunately, the church has become a reflection of the spiritual depth of its members. I like this quote from Leonard Ravenhill. He writes, The tragedy of today is the church is pursuing happiness, not holiness. Church become somewhat like a well-worn sweater to its members provides security, warmth, and doesn't demand too much. In too many churches, the church is no longer the vehicle whereby you worship and serve God, but it's the place you get your desires and your felt needs met. We never judge, let alone call sin what it is in many churches. We tolerate and we don't talk about hell. A.W. Tozier was really somewhat uh, prophetic in, in this statement you see here. <clears throat> if the Holy Spirit were taken away from the New Testament church, 90% of what they did would come to a halt. But if the Holy Spirit were taken away from the church today, 10% of what we do would come to a halt. The typical church spends the vast majority of its time and expense on itself. 
If the lost want to come visit, hey, that's great. If not, that's okay too. You see, we have our oil, and they're responsible to get their own. Yet how can they know unless someone tells them? But you may ask, well, who are we to tell them they're sinners on their way to hell without Christ? Or who are we to ask them if they're truly saved and living for the Lord? Or who are we to even ask them in the first place anything about their belief? They might get offended. The fact that they're on their way to hell doesn't seem to touch our emotions anymore. All too often, just like the wise virgins, no tears are shed for those left behind today. Let me ask a question. When was the last time you shed a tear for the lost? Am I making too much about the loss of our tears for the lost? Look at Christ's tears mentioned in the Bible. There's two prominent references to Christ's tears in the Scripture, which I'm going to discuss with you. There's a third when he bled tears of blood. First is John 11.35, and I bet you the young folks here can tell me what that one is. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Truth is, there's actually in the original language a shorter one that's only one word, but in the English language, that's the shortest one in the Bible. The word wept there, though, means an inner sadness. It means he simply shed a tear. It was an internal emotion, but it wasn't externally expressed. Luke 19.41, and when he came near, he beheld the city and wept over it. The word wept there is actually to lament. It has the sense of a cry, external, physical. It was, um, the best way I can describe that is when I was in my 20s, my grandmother died and they told me, and I went out to my car and I just sat, and all of a sudden I just could not stop. My body and everything, I was just so shook up about that. So, Those are the two differences there. So let's look at why Jesus wept. Let's look at what the Scripture says why he wept. Let's begin and look at John 11.35. Most sermons I've heard on this verse focus on the idea that Jesus was weeping because of the death of Lazarus, whom he loved and the pain it caused those who loved him. This showed the humanness of Jesus. While I won't dismiss this entirely, it misses the importance of the event that was going to occur demonstrating that Jesus was divine, the Son of God. Let me explain. In this passage, Jesus was going to perform his last miracle, which would validate to the Jews in particular that he was the Messiah. For the Jews the supreme marker or evidence of the Messiah was that he would have dominion over death based on Isaiah 25, verses 7 and 8. Let me read those to you. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall 
be taken away from off the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So let me, we need to back up a little bit, okay? <clears throat> and dig a little deeper into the text to understand why Jesus' last miracle would validate him as Messiah. I'm going to read John 11. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then I'm going to jump over to verses uh, 11 and 15. John 11, verse uh, 1. <clears throat> now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary which anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. And when he... Heard, therefore, that he was sick. This is important. He abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that said to his disciple, let's go into Judea again. In the next several verses, when he says that, there's some discussion with the disciples. Uh, But then I'm going to start at verse 11. These things said he, and after that he said them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of the sleep. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he had only spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus unto them plainly said, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes I was not there, to the intent ye may believe, nevertheless, let us go on to him. <clears throat> so when you read this passage, you're inclined to ask, why did Jesus wait two extra days before going to see Lazarus? Seems a little cold. Well, there's something important we need to know, that the Jews did not certify someone as dead until after they were dead three days. So let's look at the logistics of what was going on here. Jesus was east of the Jordan River. Lazarus was in Bethany, to the west of Jerusalem. A man could walk that distance in two days, and maybe one day if he walked at night. However, a woman would always take two days. One because they wouldn't walk at night, but they would take two days. Lazarus was dead four days when Jesus got there. So let's just do the math. Let's say they walked one day, Jesus, to get there. And two days he stayed But Martha and Mary would have had it taken two days, which would have been five days. So Jesus was dead before they got there. Lazarus was dead before they got there. Now, if Jesus and his disciples took two days, Lazarus actually would have died the day they showed up to where Jesus was. Mm -hmm. So Jesus stayed, right, to make sure that Lazarus had been at dead at least three days. Right? Now remember, Jesus had 
Jesus had already uh, risen someone from the dead prior to that, right? He raised Jairus' daughter, but that was in a private setting, right? And it was less than three days, right? And the Pharisees could claim that she wasn't really dead. However, with Lazarus, they couldn't make that claim. The Jews had already determined that Lazarus was truly dead. While Jesus loved Lazarus and his sister, his intent to raise Lazarus from the dead was to glorify God and that they would believe that he was who he claimed to be. John 11, 25, 26. Jesus said unto her, this is where he's talking to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, he, yet he shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest that though. He was showing them that he was going to be the way that they would live forever and also have a relationship with God. So why then did Jesus weep? Right? I mean, he knew that Lazarus was dead and he was going to raise him. Right? Well, in verses 33 and 38, there's, some very, there's a very interesting word that's utilized in the King James. And I'll read verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit. And in 38, Jesus, this is, and that was before Jesus wept. After Jesus wept, Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone laid upon it. The actual word, we think of groan as like, oh, you know. But the actual word conveys the idea of in anger or in disappointment with towards something. Wait a second. He's supposed to be upset and sad about Lazarus. But right beforehand and even afterwards, it talks about a word where he's a little disappointed and upset about something. <clears throat> Why was he upset? Well, before, what happened? They challenged him. Geez, this man before could open eyes, but now he can't, he could have saved his friend and he didn't of this woman. Right? <clears throat> John MacArthur writes this. His tears were not out of mourning since he knew he would raise Lazarus, but for grief for the fallen world entangled in sin caused by sorrow and death. Jesus wept because despite the fact he would demonstrate that he had dominion over death, some would choose not to believe because of their entanglement with sin. Why do I say that? Let's look at verses 45 and 46. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. If I've heard Brother Truman say... Once, I've heard him say it several times, but is a oppositional conjunction. Right? 
He's contrasting here that some believed. They had just seen him have dominion over death, and some would believe. But, some went and told the Pharisees. What he's implying is, is they did not believe. Jesus wept because sin would keep some people to reject the Savior despite demonstrating his dominion over death. They were okay with his miracles. They even given the impression of him being his followers, but they rejected him as Savior and Lord. Like the foolish virgins, they had the appearance, but they didn't have the oil. Let's turn our attention to Luke now. And that verse is, And when he came near and beheld the city, he wept over it. This is a familiar passage that we would all attribute to Palm Sunday. Yes, he wept because of the future destruction of Jerusalem, but mainly for the underlying root cause of that destruction. The Jews had hopes for a conquering Messiah, not a suffering servant. Yet despite an obvious demonstration of his, to his Jewish brethren that he was the Passover lamb who would atone for their sins, this truth would be hidden from their eyes. They looked the part, but they were lost. Just like the four foolish virgins. Again, let's look at the setting. Okay, I'm going to read Luke 19.35. <clears throat> The 40. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of the Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that might that they had seen. Saying, Blessed is the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy, thy disciples. And he answered them and said, I tell you that if these hold their peace, the stones would cry out, would immediately cry out, which was, we quoted a, a verse back in Habakkuk. <clears throat> but, let me ask you a question. Why is that cult important? Nice part of the story, wrote a little cult in, right? Actually really important to the Jews. <clears throat> First of all, the day he rode into Jerusalem and actually went up to the temple on that cult was the day that families selected their Passover lamb for slaughter. In addition, historically, a cult was symbolically ridden to the tabernacle and then the temple by the high priest on the Day of Atonement before entering the Holy of Holies. The cult would represent purity, and the riding of a cult represented the willingness to die for the people by approaching the Holy God on behalf of the people. The high priest, if he was not cleansed or impure, and was found to be impure with sin, he would die in the presence of God. 
By riding the colt into the city, Jesus was conveying to those in Jerusalem that he indeed was the sacrificial lamb of God and who was willing to go to make atonement for the sins of the people. Yet they didn't recognize it. Let me tell you why they didn't recognize it. And we have to go over to Mark 11 because Luke doesn't put quite as much details in it. But let me read that to you. And they brought the cult to Jesus and cast their garments on him. And he sat on it. And many spread garments in the way. And others cut down branches off trees, which we, that's why on Palm Sunday we put palms down. And strawed them in the way. And, and they that went before and they that followed cried saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about all things, and now the eventide was come, he went into Bethany with the twelve. Why do I have you read that? Well, The people wanted a conquering hero king as a Messiah. All their actions that day were consistent with actions taken when a conquering hero or warrior king returned from battle. Laying one's coats before him was a sign of dependent submission under a conquering hero. The branches and palms, which were palms, conveyed the person was their political leader. For palms was the national symbol of Israel when it last was its own separate country. The shout of Hosanna, which, quite frankly, I've been in churches where everybody shouts Hosanna. The shout of Hosanna, though, was a celebratory cry reserved for returning victorious warriors who had secured the people's security. Hmm. It's interesting, you notice the songs we sang today had hallelujah in them, not hosanna. Look at Luke 19, 42 to 44. Christ's heart must have been broken that the people had been led so far astray. They were going through the appearance of being his followers, but they were lost without hope. They wouldn't enter into the celebration of the bridegroom just like the foolish virgins. Despite the obvious fulfillment of Scripture, the crowd did not recognize him as the suffering servant willing to humbly sacrifice his life for them as foretold in Isaiah. Therefore, their only means for peace with God was hidden from their eyes and now they were subject to the wages of their rejection. That's why he wept. He understood that they were rejecting him, and they were on their way to hell. <clears throat> Luke 19, 42-44, saying, If thou had known even thou at the least in this day the things which belong unto thy peace, and he's talking about peace with God, but they are now hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, and thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass round thee, and keep thee in on every side, and they shall thee even the ground with thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee 
one stone upon another, which is interesting. He foretold exactly how Titus conquered the city. <clears throat> because thou knewest not the day of thy visitation. Their eyes were hid. They knewest not the time of the visitation. Again, MacArthur comments on this scripture referencing the phrase, because thou knewest not the time of thy salvation. This was a divine judgment for their failure to recognize and embrace their Messiah when he visited or revealed himself to them. But Jerusalem was no different than the foolish virgins. They weren't prepared for the bridegroom, were they? They had all the religious appearances, but they really didn't have the oil, the commitment. They were left out of the wedding feast to come. Jerusalem in this passage is also a representation of all mankind who may claim a relationship with Christ, but have never truly surrendered their all to Him, as well as those who outright reject So why did Christ weep? I believe very strongly that he wept in each of those cases because he obviously is omniscient and he knew those folks there were on their way to hell who were going to reject him in both those scenarios. Yes, he cared about Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. There's no doubt about that. But if you look into the text deeply, in each of those cases, it specifically talks about how Folks were going to miss the point and then reject him. <clears throat> That's why I believe Christ wept for the lost. Let me get a little personal with you. Why do you weep? For whom have you wept? When was the last time we really wept for the lost? Or are we more like those foolish virgins? Or are we more like the wise virgins? We don't really care. Though most believe it's important that they share their faith, statistics unfortunately show that the vast majority of Christians have never been used of God to share the gospel and shepherd another person to Christ. I saw a shocking statistic back in 1999 that if every believer was used of God once a year to lead a person to Christ, the entire world would be Christian. But why don't we share the gospel with our lost relatives, our friends and neighbors? Well, let me show you or share with you the main reasons why people say they don't share the gospel. One, leave it to the professionals. They'll do it better. Really? How did the Pharisees and the Sadducees do back in Jesus' time? They were the professionals. How about those television, wealth and health and evangelists you see on TV? Did you know two weeks after Billy Graham crusades, the majority of the folks who walk the aisle are no longer involved in their Christian walk? 
why they had to make a dramatic change and make sure they connected them to a church. But these are facts. Most saved individuals were introduced to Christ by a friend or a family member, not a church sermon. Most unchurched come to church because a friend invited them. Not because we have a fancy sign outside and we have all sorts of promotional programs, but because a friend invited them. Reason two is I'm too timid. It's my personality. I've not been given the gift of evangelism. Tell that to Moses. Right? Didn't Moses try that one? What did God say? Go. Well, we fear people's response. We're concerned about the consequences. Again, what would Christ have thought? I've got to go, if I go there to to earth, they're going to kill me. You know what? I don't want those consequences. I mean, what if Christ thought the same way we do? Right? I really like the verse in 2 Timothy regarding this concept of fear. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be thou not therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Or notice, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. That calling is what? We need to share the gospel. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Jesus Christ before the world began. And then the last one is, and very prominent here in the United States is, actually in the Western world is, Faith is just simply a private matter. It's nobody else's business. Let me show you a slide that might shake us a little bit on that. It's Ezekiel 33, 7-9. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. I want you, he's talking in the Old Testament, but this applies to us. Therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked man from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. God's had an expectation all the way through history that his people would share his word with them. What's the real reason people don't want to share or share the gospel with friends? We don't really care for lost souls. We're more concerned with our own comfort and possibly we don't want to give up our sinful ways. We've lost what the early church knew so well. And I'm not, I'll say, trying to step on everyone's toes here. I'm talking about the church in general, the Christian church in general. I like this quote from General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And I apologize for this one, Truman. 
I wish pastors and evangelists would have to be hung over hell for 24 hours so they would appreciate the urgency of sharing the gospel. Now that's not just for pastors, that's for all of us. <clears throat> have I ever stated the need and the responsibility to share the gospel? Well, let me share a couple of verses that should cause serious concern on our part. Anybody know what the sin of Sodom was? Probably not what most would raise their hand and tell me. I want to show you a verse. Ezekiel 16, 49-50. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty. And then, because of that, they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Their sin was arrogance, materialism, and self-centeredness. They wanted to be comfortable. Right? They didn't want any different. That's what their problem was. <clears throat> Also, let's look at 1 Peter 4.17. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begins it us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? <clears throat> well, what should our response be? Well, let's look at some familiar passages in Scripture to understand how the New Testament church Respond. It responded in how we should be responding. I'll look at some very familiar passages. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Right? The Great Commission. It's interesting. When most people think of the Great Commission, they like to start at verse 19. But it's a single thought from verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke unto them. Here it is. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He had the authority now to say what he's going to say. Go, ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto death. Jesus, yes, he was speaking to his disciples at that time, but aren't we his disciples? And he's speaking to us. Not optional. If you notice in there, it's a command. The word go is a command. It's imperative. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As believers, we're to be his ambassadors. As ambassadors, we're bound to represent him and we're obligated to communicate that which he has given us to communicate to those he sends us. That's the role of the ambassadors that the president has throughout the world, the exact same. Represent and speak only but speak exactly what he has told them to speak. <clears throat> God's making his appeal to the world through us. What a privilege. And we should be honored to be used to achieve his will. 
Let's look at the new church a little more closely. In Acts 5, 40-42. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus. I want you to notice the progression. They were beaten. And they rejoiced. And did they stop doing what they were doing? No, they taught and preached. How about most contemporary Christians? They're inconvenienced. You mean they're going to make us you know, do something different this week? They complain. But then they typically just pull back and withdraw. Not very consistent with the early church. But I also want you to notice where they were preaching and teaching. Yes, it was in the temple. But it was in every home. It was at their neighbor's. It was at their relatives that they were teaching and preaching and making sure that they knew the gospel. In closing, I'd like to just say we need to recapture hearts that weep for the lost. To do so, we must begin to trust and obey God in this matter. What may seem a really small matter of obedience may have a tremendous impact. I want to take us a look at a a fellow... Nobody special, but a fellow named Edward Kimball, a shoe salesman. He had a heart for a lost salesman. He shared the gospel with a fellow named D.L. Moody. Most of you know about D.L. Moody. Went on to be a great Bible teacher. D.L. Moody shared the gospel with Wilbur Chapman, who became an evangelist and a preacher. Wilbur Chapman shared the gospel with Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday conducted evangelistic meetings in Charlotte, North Carolina, and invited Mordecai Ham, another minister, to preach. Mordecai Ham shares the gospel with Billy Graham. And we all know what Billy Graham has done, right? All started because this guy, Edward Kimball, had a heart for the lost. <clears throat> I'm not naive about the difficulty of this task before. Sharing the gospel today is not easy with our culture of relativism, which expounds extreme tolerance based on the false belief that there is no absolute truth. Truth is not subjective. We have the truth that we must be faithful to call Christ to the call that Christ has given us. I've spoken with Pastor uh, Truman several times. I mean, I really like the apologetics and things like that, and I'd like to be prepared with that because today we see that the vast majority of young people raised in the church walk away. Like 70%. Why is that? Well, there's a survey they took of those kids, and 70% said, I had questions and nobody in the church would answer my questions and share them with me. It's very sad. 
We must be committed to the call that Christ has put before us. And then 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and with fear. Every day we pass lost people. Each of us probably know family members, friends and neighbors who aren't saved. Might know some that would say, oh, well, I raised my hand. I said that little prayer, but their life doesn't show that they truly have turned it over to Christ. When was the last time you wept for those people? Because they need Christ. I encourage you to identify a person for whom you feel that you know really needs to hear the gospel and try, really try to make that effort to just share the word with them. When You, you never know. It might be another Edward Kimball. I want to share a couple quotes from some uh, theologians and pastors in the past. One is from W.H. Griffith Thomas. It says, Let us sit at Christ's feet until we learn the secrets of His tears and beholden the sins and sorrows of the city and the countryside and weep over them. Spurgeon wrote, and I'll close with this, winners of souls must first be weepers for souls. Let me close in prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, as we move forward in this new year, Lord, we'd ask that You